The episode of I Think Therefore I Fan you're about to listen to contains significant spoilers for the television program Miracle Workers. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Welcome. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. All right. So that that music, right, can only mean no things. That it's literally indicative of nothing. Um, but it's, but it's got a certain kind of feel, and we are talking about something, and that something is free will. Free will. Yeah. So I I chose this because um, it has a sort of nice clock-like mechanical thing, which you know plays a kind of prominent role in the free will debate. Um, but maybe not. Maybe I chose it because I had no choice but to choose that music. It was, in some sense, inevitable that that was going to be our theme music this week. All right, so um, let's, let's dive right in. So free will, the common understanding of free will is that an action is free if and only if an agent could have done otherwise, right? So that they, they picked what they picked and that they weren't somehow forced or determined to pick what they picked. And so... Uh, there are two main views that I think are most common among just the general population about free will. Uh, one is that we don't have it. Mm-hmm. I think that that position is significantly less common than the position that we do have it. Yeah, would, would you say that, you know, many people that think we don't have free will that aren't professional philosophers? Oh, uh, I would say, in my experience, when I talk to students, I've taught lots of large um, lecture courses uh, where I talk about this topic where we've got like 70 students or more and the vast majority of them believe that we have free will. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, by the end of the unit, some are convinced that we don't have it, uh, but very few enter into the conversation believing that we don't have it. Right. In contrast, um, I'm teaching a upper division course. It's a, smaller in numbers. Mm-hmm. And so the first day, very first thing, um, I pulled the class. Mm-hmm. And it was 50-50, right? But I suspect almost everybody in the class had been through something like the intro unit yeah. and had it come up in their yeah. um, you know, history of modern philosophy courses. Or maybe they would yeah, done Aristotle's The Sea Battle in an intro course or an ancient course. So, yeah, as, as time goes on and you get more and more exposed to these issues, intuitions change. And I, I think that it's, <clears throat> you know, it, it, many of these people maybe haven't carefully thought about it before. Some of them maybe have. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's so ingrained in our culture, this idea that you have free will, right? I mean, uh, it's a major part of, a significant part of many religions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's inherent to all sorts of systems, right? That, um, if, you know, free will is a precondition for certain kinds of things. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, if you think of other philosophical concepts, right? Um, they just 
take some sort of standard ones. Uh, Plato's theory of the forms, right? <laughs> and things like that. They're not part of most people's common vernacular. But the free will stuff has really made its way into probably most people's thinking, you know, in some sense, um, you know, by early adolescence even, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you watch court television shows and did you do this of your own free will? I mean, right. it's, it's a concept. Mm -hmm. It's one of the, you know. So by contrast, think of all the people you know walking around thinking about De Morgan's theorems, right? That's mm -hmm. an instance of philosophy, even though they, they might sort of tacitly use them. No one's walking around just sort of thinking about that without having thought about it too much, because I don't think people think about free will too much. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's certainly part of your, your sort of experience and reality. Yeah, I would say that a, a similar concept where like people have a notion about it, but they haven't thought super carefully about it is um, the soul, mm -hmm. right? They just sort of take an affirmative position toward it, mm -hmm. um, but don't think about what it is or what it necessarily entails. Or... Right, right, right. Um, and then very few people think about personal identity, right? Some people think about meaning in life, but that's more of a cliche than a actual kind of thing. Okay, so you were saying the two views you've got. Yeah, so it's, it's so I, I mentioned that the two main views are that we have free will and that we don't. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when I say the main views, I'm not talking about an academic philosophy. I'm talking about mainstream, right? That just among people. And uh, so, but in academic philosophy, those two views are referred to as, and there's some um, differences in the literature, right? Some mm -hmm. people are using different terms, but... Um, Libertarianism is the view that we have free will, and hard determinism is the view that um, because determinism is true, we don't have free will. Right, right. And free will as you've defined it. Um, mm -hmm. So you mentioned these are sort of the two main views, and then we'll, we'll get into the third view, which in my opinion, um, sort of interestingly, is the one that dominates philosophy. And I don't, I don't know if this is true, but I took a, a seminar in grad school on free will, and the instructor started by saying, you know, I think 80% of um, the professional philosophers working on this are not in either of those camps, right? They're in the compatibilist camp, which we'll talk about mm -hmm. momentarily, and then maybe, you know, 15% um, no free will and 5% libertarian. I, I don't know if those numbers mm -hmm. bear out. And that was a long time ago. But I mean, that's kind of my intuitive sense as well. Just looking at the literature and whatnot. Okay, yeah. So um, <clears throat> these, these two views are um, two of the sort of three ways of dealing with this, this argument that comes up quite a bit. Um, they'll call the dilemma argument. And we're just presenting this to, to frame the discussion. But I should point out I'm currently teaching this course in free will. And I'm using this argument to frame the entire semester, essentially, right? Um, everything we look at can be seen as a way of responding to this argument um, in one way or another. So the dilemma argument um, says, okay, either, you know, everything is determined, right? And that means that, you know, the, the laws of nature plus the initial state of the universe, um, given that, you know, physical things operate according to pretty rigid physical laws or such that, um, everything that happens was caused to happen, couldn't have happened differently unless we had different laws or an additional, uh, uh, a different um, initial state. So uh, that's determinism, right? And either that's true or indeterminism, which is the view that um, determinism is false, right? We'll just deny it as the denial of determinism are the case. So it's a dilemma argument because you've got 
this view determinism or not determinism. One of those must be true. And then there's a premise in the argument that says if determinism is true, then um, there's no free will, right? There's no free will because if determinism is true, then everything that um, happened was causally determined to happen such that nothing could have gone differently. Um, and being able to do other than what one did um, is a precondition for freedom, right? If, if you couldn't have done otherwise, um, then you don't have free will, at least not in the sense that, that Rach defined it a moment ago. Um, the next premise says, well, what if indeterminism is true? Then the idea there is that everything um, is not determined because some things are random, right? Normally people point to random indeterminacy, and, you know, the, the quantum level and all of that. But that kind of randomness isn't going to get you free will either, right? I mean, if something happens randomly, then it's not the case that, that you did it. You're not the sole author of that act. Um, so determinism or indeterminism is true. Determinism gets you, on this argument, no free will. Indeterminism, on this argument, gets you no free will. Therefore, there's no, no free will. Um, so where does, where does that leave us? Well, if you're a libertarian, as, as Rach discussed earlier, you're going to reject that premise that says indeterminism is, is just randomness, right? The libertarian thinks, no, 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 there's, there's um, indeterminism, and the indeterminism is specifically my ability to choose to do things, right? That my being an agent um, means that I'm not subject to these kind of rigid causal laws. Uh, my old professor from the, the graduate seminar I took uh, used to always... Um, I should describe this guy. He sort of looked like a prospector. He's a very cool dude. And he'd just be waving his hands around the air going, look, here's my hands. My hands are going up in the air. I just did this. I chose, right? Um, like one of those guys from Blazing Saddles or something. Um, <clears throat> anyway, excuse me. So, um, you know, the libertarians just think, no, I, I can choose to do these things. I'm not subject to these rigid laws. Um, I have no idea how this works. I've read lots of papers about it. Um, Sometimes it comes from a soul, right? But most libertarians, I think, don't believe in a soul. Um, you think so? I, I think almost all of them do. Oh, well, maybe. The, the libertarians that I've encountered are uh, um, also tend to be religious philosophers, too. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I haven't noticed that. So for as far as laypersons go, right, because you were talking earlier, um, certainly they, that's just the natural view that people, most people hold, mm -hmm. and they run the gamut. Um, but yeah, maybe... maybe more of them are, at least some of the, the more famous libertarian arguments I've looked at haven't appealed to the soul to do the work. Right, but they also typically don't describe the mechanism by which any of this is taking place. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, I hope you don't mind if I just no, jump in go here, ahead. But, I yeah. mean, uh, think about what you have to take on if you want to say that your free will is um, an instance of indeterminism. <laughs> Right. I mean, so presumably thoughts and decisions and those types of things occur within brains. And the brain, of course, is a physical thing that's subject to causal mm -hmm. laws. And so if you want to say that you can make choices that are in no way bound by causal laws, then how in the world can those choices be made in a brain? Right, right. One, one way that, that I've seen it argued, um, this is sort of very unconvincing because it, it just basically asserts that it happens, is... But the brains evolved to have this feature of choosing. So it may be 
cause to initiate the choosing sequence, but the choices within it are free. But again, that's you know Descartes' pineal gland essentially, <laughs> right? It has this magic. Um, okay, so the other way that, that folks respond to this argument um, is the compatibilist line, right? To say, no, 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 that, that premise that says if determinism is true, there's no free will can happen is false, right? And so they, they attempt to establish how determinism and free will can both exist. And that normally means rejecting the could have done otherwise um, clause and replacing it with something else, right? So in other words, they redefine free will. Free will becomes something else. Yeah, right. My act is freely performed if I chose it. My act is freely performed if it's consistent and by, with something I desire. Yeah, well, right. By choice, not libertarian choice, but some part of if me... If you did it because you wanted to. Some part of me endorsed it. Yeah. I did it because I wanted to. Or um, that I was able to um, be reasons responsive in producing that choice, right? All the while, I can't do otherwise on this view, but that's not relevant. I, it, it's emanating enough from something like a self or something like me such that my act um, ends up counting as, as free. Okay, so it's an it's a interesting um, debate, right? It's, it's tricky to somehow carve out a space for freedom, but yet it's so much a big part of what we do. Um, you know, as, as people, we view ourselves as free. Um, we, you know, act as if others are free when we punish them and praise them and blame them and so forth. And there's, there's some kind of fun implications of the entire free will debate, right? So um, divine foreknowledge, right, um, tends to pose a big problem for free will. But a lot of religious people think God knows everything that's going to happen, and yet we still have free will, right? But the worry there, of course, is if God knows that in, you know, eight minutes I'm going to make a sandwich um, or not, right, then it seems like it's not up to me in advance of that happening mm -hmm. to choose one way or the other, right? Yeah, one way I put that to my students is if knowledge is justified true belief, then if God knew from eternity that you were going to make a sandwich in eight minutes, then that means that it was already true, but long before you ever existed that you were going to make a sandwich in eight minutes and, yeah. and you can't make it false by right. choosing otherwise. This now has me on the topic of my other course because I'm teaching epistemology. Um, but just as a quick aside, do you think that God ever has Gettier cases where God has a justified true belief for something of that's not. false and deduces <laughs> something inadvertently true? Enough? Okay. Um, <laughs> crazy God and Gettier. Um, I often confuse those two guys. Okay. So, yeah, um, another sort of big part of it, and this is something I think that gets explored quite a bit in pop culture, is um, moral responsibility, right? There's this idea that, you know, um, and the compatibilists deny this like crazy. But, you know, if you could not have done other than what you did, right, we tend to think you're not morally responsible, right? There's all kinds of cases that come to courts and whatnot, and, you know, it turns out that, that somebody did a thing, but they were coerced in such a way that, that they couldn't do differently, and, and we historically are sort of very lenient about that. Well, um, it depends on how wealthy you are. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. If you get to go to court and, <laughs> and not, if you have good representation, not just have the public not, defender and yeah. someone that's looked at your case for five minutes. Um, right. And then Frankfurt um, has this this wonderful paper. Um, you know, two of the most I just mentioned Getty a moment ago. I think two of the most influential papers. You know, in the last probably fifty years, 
involves something very similar where they take this time-honored principle and and produce counterexamples. And then this just spawns a ton of literature, right? So, um, you know, in the Gettier case, everybody thought knowledge was only justified true belief, right? From Plato to 1963. And Frankfurt sort of done this um, same thing with his paper on the principle of alternate possibilities, right? He took it, he starts by saying it's his gospel, right? Nobody would question the idea that if you, that you can be morally responsible in cases where you couldn't do otherwise. And then he, he constructs these, these interesting cases. Um, I feel a, a sort of kinship to, to Frankfurt. Um, I think he's a little older than me, but sort of coming up in the same era. Um, he has great examples where mad scientists do things. This is my childhood in a nutshell, right? That um, what if a mad scientist could control your brain? So he's got this, this case where, you know, um, some mad scientist puts a chip in somebody's brain and they're going to make them do this thing, right, that, that um, they want to do anyway if they get some indication they're not going to do it. Can, yeah. Can you fill out the particulars? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, <clears throat> I might, I might uh, say the names wrong. Uh, I might not say them the way they're listed in the paper, but Jones is deciding whether to shoot Smith. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, J- Jones has a beef against Smith. He may well shoot Smith on his own. But there's this mad scientist, Black, in the background who's put a chip in Jones's head um, and that can detect whether Jones is going to shoot Smith mm-hmm. um, or not. And so uh, if Jones, if he can tell, if the chip can detect that Jones is going to go ahead and shoot Smith on his own, then no one needs to intervene. It'll just happen. Uh, but if the chip detects that uh, Jones is not going to shoot Smith, then Black presses a button, it activates the chip, and the chip forces Jones to shoot Smith. Yeah. And so what this demonstrates is, uh, the, the, the key insight here is that Jones couldn't have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. It's built into the story that he couldn't have done otherwise. But uh, the intuition that is supposed to be generated is that if Jones, if, if Black doesn't have to intervene, if Black doesn't push the button, um, and, and Jones shoots Smith because he wants to, then Jones is morally responsible for shooting Smith. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if part of what underwrites that is, as we hear that story, we think that Jones, yeah, I mean, the, the example works. He could not have done otherwise. Mm-hmm. But we still sort of have Jones choosing it, right? Um, I think that what Frankfurt would just say is he's doing it because he wants to. That, that, yeah. that for the compatibilist, because... Um, the beliefs and desires of the agent are part of the immediate causal story leading to the mm-hmm. event, that's enough. Right, right. So the, the, the worry then is, and I think that's, that's right, that's um, exactly Frankfurt's line. Um, he wants to, but if you go back a step and you say, but, but he didn't choose to want to right. and, and all that. So it's, it's still controversial, which you know, makes for great philosophy. Um, okay, so... Those are, you know, sort of some of the implications of this debate and, and what's at stake. Um, but there's one other thing um, before we get to the some of the pop culture stuff um, that I wanted to kick around. Um, Dirk Paraboom has this very interesting paper um, where mm-hmm. he thinks, okay, there's, you know, there's no free will. Um, on this debate, he's agnostic about determinism or indeterminism, but he, he seems to think that the dilemma argument or something like that's working, right? There's, that you're not going to get compatibilist free will. You're not going to get libertarian free will. Um, so what are the implications of that? And and I think, you know, going back to our students, the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, well, that'd be bad. You know, we, everything mm-hmm. we're doing is wrong and mm-hmm. 
But anyway. Yeah, I, I, he argues that in many ways the world might be a better place if we all recognize that we didn't have free will. Um, so I think that th there's one way of viewing things where it's like, oh, but uh, if what if what if we all recognize that we didn't have free will? What would change? I mean, we'd all be causally determined to do the things that we do. So what difference does it make? But once you're having these conversations and it's now whether it's causally determined or not, let's just let's just assume that it is. Once you're, you're causally determined to be thinking about these things, it's also going to perhaps set off a chain of events according to which that factors into your deliberations about what to do. And so it could. So, so some of the critics of, there, there are some critics of, of, um, deter, of hard determinism that want to say, look, if, if, even if we don't have free will, we just better behave as if we do. Because some of our most important social institutions are grounded on the fact that we have free will. So um, I'll just mention a few. Um, uh, first, just judgments about ethics in general. So um, some critics of hard determinism think we can make no value judgments if there's no such thing as free will. Because all value judgments rely in, on some sense in on the idea that things are praiseworthy and blameworthy. And obviously, if there's no free will... The concept of uh, concepts of praiseworthiness and blameworthiness go away, and and one response to that though, Paraboom's response to that is to say, well, just because the concepts of praise and blame go away, doesn't mean that the concepts of good, bad, right, and wrong go away. So even if there's you're not justified in praising someone, there are still good states of affairs mm -hmm. that it might be right to bring about, and even if even if there's no such thing as blame, there still might be bad states of affairs that would be wrong to bring about. Yeah, so we were talking about this in my class the other day and they asked, well, so how does that work? And I said, you know, suppose a, um, you know, the wind blows a rock and the rock mm -hmm. rolls down a hill and runs over my foot, uh -huh. you know? Yeah. I'm not going to blame the rock, right? Uh, or the wind. I mean, uh -huh. it's, just, yeah. it's just this thing that happened and yet it's still bad. My foot hurts. Yeah. It's, yeah. you know. Yeah, and people can do wrong things without being blameworthy for them, mm -hmm. right? So so in your case, you're you're describing a, you know, a rock that isn't, you wouldn't think was an agent, right? But, but even when you're dealing with like human beings, um, you know, children do things that are yeah. wrong. So the wind blows Henry down a hill. <laughs> or even if Henry hits you in the foot, yeah, right? Yeah. If, if, if free will doesn't exist, uh, it may have still have been wrong for Henry to hit you in the foot. He's just not blameworthy for it because yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, free will doesn't exist. So, so then there are these, uh, so our major institutions like, um, moral education, people are concerned moral education will go away, but we have this, I mean, w one thing I love about this paper is it really hits hard on retributivism and I hate retributivism. So I think, I think this is someday you're going to get punished for that. <laughs> a great series of critiques. So like our, our systems of moral education probably shouldn't rely so heavily on retributivism anyway. And so retributivism is this, the theory of punishment that um, a person who's done wrong should get what they deserve. And if right, free right. will doesn't exist, there's, that makes no sense. Um, nobody deserves anything because they're not blameworthy. Um, but we really should, you know, I mean, probably a better way of, uh, of morally educating our children is to offer them reasons for and against certain positions to maybe give them, uh, you know, things like ethics bowl cases, right? Absent sort of 
cases where they can think about the moral features of uh, of something without um, without them actually having to be in that situation, so they can practice. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, but not spanking them or or doing retributivist things, right? Mm-hmm. Those aren't effective punishments anyway. <clears throat> um, so things like that, things like um, our 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 criminal justice system relies on this idea of retributivism too. I mean, we're one of the most retributivistic countries in the world with our death penalty and all this. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that, I mean, that's really misguided in it. And um, it allows us to be kind of lazy in the way that we think about re- criminal reform. I mean, we're, we don't think about criminal reform because we're too busy thinking about retributivism. Right, right. So, I mean, we could, if we let go of the idea that we have um, free will, we could really start more effectively um, making uh, people who've committed crimes uh, helping them develop into contributing members of society again. And for those that we can't, so uh, Paraboom um, suggests something like quarantine. There's something that looks a lot like quarantine. So mm-hmm. a serial killer or something. Maybe the, some serial killers will actually report, I won't be able to stop doing this. It's impossible. And so, yeah, it, it might be appropriate to get those people out of society, but w- the way you deal with them looks more like quarantining someone who's really sick. And when you quarantine someone who's really sick, um, you're not justified in treating them terribly. You've got mm-hmm. to treat them humanely and with respect. Yeah, um, I, I like all this. So um, critics, of course, are going to say, great, so you, you want to send Jeffrey Dahmer to Club Med or something like that. If but, we don't uh, have free will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if we don't have free will, then Jeffrey Dahmer didn't have any more choice than you or I do. Right, and, it, and even if we do have free will, right, it, it seems somebody like Jeffrey Dahmer clearly had no choice anyway. That was a mm-hmm. yeah. kind of compulsion. I, I'll just mention one more of these things that come up comes up in Paraboom's discussion. And that, um, he mentions, and I, so I don't know that you could really get rid of this. So I'm a little skeptical. But there's this idea that he raises that anger yeah, the reactive would, would never be justified, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because anger relies on the idea that someone's, you know, could have done otherwise, really. Um in, in at least plenty of instances. And some of the world's worst problems are caused by anger. You know, war, uh, tribalism, these kinds of things. Uh, that, that if we all just realize, no, genuinely we don't have free will, we'd be more compassionate with one another and anger perhaps would be less likely to occur. Although I think it's probably an evolutionary mechanism, so I don't know how... Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of dubious of that. So, um, But I mean, I like the suggestion, right? I mean, you, you could... Um eliminate a lot of angry reactions if you were just more naturally empathetic and so forth. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, last week um, we had hurricane force winds and mm-hmm. that's no one's fault. I remember feeling a little bit of anger. Yeah. I was just yeah. like yeah. mad that it was happening. You know, we're in the house and it's for about eight hours shaking like crazy. Me too. I, you know, or my stop. rock example. Yeah. I was like, oh man, stupid rock ran right over yeah. my foot. I, yeah. I don't intellectually blame the rock, but I would still be angry. Or you can be angry that stuff happens, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, it wasn't your fault that you did this when we had this argument. But um, I'm angry at the universe that caused it. Mm-hmm. The anger is probably still um, going to be there. Okay, so let's change gears a little bit. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about why I wanted to talk about this topic, right? So you, you were the one that suggested it um, a couple of weeks ago. And I got... Um, excited at the prospect um, for a really weird reason, um, that there's something unexciting about this. And, and so in a way, um, 
I want you to help me with what I'm calling my mid-semester crisis, <laughs> right? So a um, little bit of background. Um, I'm teaching this course on free will. We have these courses at our university um, that just rotate through the faculty that we don't teach every semester or even every year or so. Um, great issues and great thinkers courses where you pick the topic that, that you want to teach. And I've done some really fun great issues, great thinkers courses. Um, the, stuff on personal identity, which we'll be talking about um, next episode with Nathan Nobis, um, stuff on the metaphysics of death, right? The things I find most interesting. And so I did this course a long time ago and I thought, oh, you know, I think the students like this. I think I'll do free will again. So I, you know, I, I put it on the schedule and I started to think about teaching it and, um, you know, the stuff I want to cover. And I just kept comparing it to all these other fun things everybody's teaching. And I thought, is this is this philosophically that interesting? I mean, it's really old um, stuff. It's you know been around for forever, and maybe that's sort of playing into my perception of the topic as being um, a little stodgier. You know, I mean, last time I taught, it, I thought it was great, and it's it's something I I like. Um, but you know, there's all this really cool stuff going on right now. So people are teaching, um, you know, stuff on. Um, Oh, I'm social epistemology. Thank you. Social epistemology. Um, right. So in my epistemology class, I just did a thing on epistemic injustice. Right. And then the public philosophy movement that you know, Rachel and I are a part of is blowing up all over the place. We're, we're making stuff relevant. Right. Um, you know, we've, we've got friends working on, um, you know, philosophy of technology and robot ethics and they're consulting governments on the use of drones and um you know, it's it's a changing world. Right? Applied philosophy is super hot right now. Yeah, I, yeah. I, that's my read anyway. Yeah, I, I mean, and even stuff in philosophy of science. I mean, philosophy of science, I thought, really kind of had its heyday in the middle of the last century, and then suddenly there's all these really fun issues in philosophy of biology and stuff that um, you know some of my colleagues work on. And then here I am trotting out this dilemma argument for free will, and there's the compatibilists. And that's what most of philosophers are. And then, as Rach pointed out, there's the hard determinists and the libertarians. And that's what everybody else divides up into. And most of them divide into libertarians. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm really enjoying this class I'm teaching, and in part because I really like my students. Um, but I've, I've lost faith in this. this. This reminds me, this issue of you know an evening at the men's only social club where butlers bring us more cigars and the scotch is 3,000 years old and I, everybody harumphs. See, I, yeah. I, I, help me out. Help me yeah, out. I, I see it differently. I, I teach free will as one of the main units in my uh, intro course every semester, although I don't know when I'll be teaching intro again. It doesn't look like for a while. But, but I have for years and years taught um, free will. And it's uh, maybe I retain my excitement for it because... Uh, it's one of the issues that my students enjoy learning mm -hmm. about the most. Uh, so I've tried over the years. I've I've had my classes um, structured in different ways. There are different approaches to teaching intro, historical approaches, and uh, and others, right? Uh, but I've I've recently started doing t great topics mm -hmm. uh, because. I want to focus on those things that will like lure students in to start studying philosophy. And I, I find that free will is one of them. They, mm -hmm. I, I try to select these issues that are, they find like mind blowing. And so I do personal identity. I do, um, mm -hmm. I do free will because these are, these are issues. Like I said, students walk into the class thinking, of course I have free will. They've never even thought twice about it. 
And then they mm. come in and I'm like, oh, whoa, mm -hmm. that's at least a problem. I don't know if I ever want to think about it again, but it's I, thinking about it now. It's at least a problem though, you know? Yeah. I mean, it, it's sort of good to knock them off their, um, their, their, you know, foundations a little bit. So the same in, you know, the epistemology class, I always start with skepticism the first day and we're just doing thought experiments and they're like, man, maybe I don't know anything. And, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. yeah, and, then you, too, and, yeah. and then you find a way to get it back. But in the free world debate, you don't. You, you just, you know, you just get them like, yeah, I free was like, are you sure? Maybe you don't. Here's some reasons why. And then they're all like, ah, maybe I don't. Okay, I'm just, you know, plug my ears. No, 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 no. And then they live the rest of their life. So, you know, mm -hmm. the, the skepticism stuff makes them think more deeply about epistemology and what it is to be a knower. And, you know, that plays this useful role in the way that, um, I mean, I, I agree, students love talking about free will, but it's important parts because it's something they haven't questioned and there's some value to that for sure well, but but you don't get it back and in, in fact you know if you do kind of the the move that you and i are doing um you, you take the uh, dirk paraboom line and say and don't worry you don't really need it yeah uh, i mean yeah i i i find it useful i tell my students that it's useful for a couple of reasons um so one i i kind of here's an analogy um so think about like Camus' view on the absurdity of human existence, right? That um, nothing is really fundamentally meaningful mm -hmm. um, and that we're just like insignificant specks, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, I imagine us happy. <laughs> there's something about that that, you know, somebody, you might be inclined to think, well, that's depressing. And I, but there's also something about it that's liberating because if, if you realize that you're not significant in the grand scheme of things, you can be a little easier on yourself, yeah. right? That the things that feel like they're, you know, you feel like a huge failure, that something really matters. It's just in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter. You know, we, we cause ourselves so much anxiety. So I wanted to, the analogy there is, you know, um, that if we don't have free will, we can be more compassionate toward ourselves, right? We can, you know, that doesn't mean that nothing ever matters, that, what we do never matters, but you can start to be more compassionate towards yourself and saying, wow, I didn't really have control over that mm -hmm. and let it go. And then the other thing is you can also be more compassionate towards others, mm -hmm. right? Stop taking such a vindictive retributivist view toward others. Yeah. So I want to share a story. Um, we've, we've got a mutual friend that um, was a former student, um, Brent B we'll call him. <laughs> and so I'm teaching him this stuff and this is in, you know, the, early 2000s um, or I'm teaching it to the class he, he was pretty savvy about all this anyway and so he's like well you're a determinist I'm like yeah yeah and he's like so you don't take credit for any of your successes and I'm like nope I'm just mm -hmm. I ended up here and I, I'm lucky that it's not as painful you know I'm not just, you feel I'm, grateful mm -hmm. I feel grateful and all that and he's like oh man so you're, you're losing that and I'm like yeah but what I get back is I don't have to feel bad for the time in the fourth grade I did this and the time. <laughs> You know, I mean, the, the list of embarrassing things that I reflect upon in my past yeah. so far outweighed the list of, hey, I, you know, on, on this day, you know, I, I hit for the cycle. And, you know, it's um, so I guess, it, you know, yeah. whether that's a good or a bad thing just depends on if on balance what you're now off the hook for yeah. is, is more bad than good. I mean, versa. so it's not it's not as if everything is permissible. Right, if you realize that you don't have free will to take a line from uh, Brothers Karamazov, mm -hmm. but that you uh, 
because once once the notions of value have been entered into the causal system, you're going to be causally determined to be thinking about yeah, value yeah. And, and good states of affairs and right states of affairs and, and so on. Mm-hmm. Right. And then the other thing that you know, people talk about is um, you know, that you lose moral responsibility. But I think that the paradigm line on that you know, that you've just canvassed is, mm-hmm. is great. Um, and, you know, you'd be surprised um, the extent to which people could still blame well, knowing full well, yeah. it reminds me of human, the problem of induction, where, you know, I rationally know that induction doesn't, um, you know, isn't isn't justified in the way that, that one would like it to be. And yet the reason inductively all the time. Right. Yeah. We're, we're, we're blamers. I'm dubious about free will and I blame people all the time. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> so. and, and I'm, I'm dubious about people who I think are responsible for <laughs> not rejecting free will, um, <laughs> yeah. even though they don't have it. So there you go. All right, so another topic I wanted to discuss um, was free will and pop culture, right? So does the, do these issues, um, these topics, does this debate um, make for good pop culture? And I think people think that it does, right? There, there's certainly plenty of it. Um, but with one exception, which I'll get to, I tend to find the sci-fi kind of stuff um, that, that's making points about free will or lack of free will uh, on balance to be considerably less interesting than the other bits of related philosophy that go into pop culture. So personal identity stuff, and again, we'll, we'll talk about this next episode, um, you know, is interesting and fantastic, right? I mean, you could talk for a month about, um, you know, the, the transporters and Star Trek and so forth and the implications of that. Um, but, you know, some of the more sort of famous um, examples of free will making its way into pop culture would be like the second Matrix movie. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just a, a disaster. And part of the, the problem is once you have um, people that, that don't have free will, they, they become less interesting as characters, right? And, it, and it's, it's an interesting hypothesis, right? That, you know, everything's sort of causally determined. Um, but once it's, you know, in in play, it, it doesn't retain the interest. So the, the examples of this that I that I um, like philosophically, you know, take something like um, I Walked With a Zombie, where you've got a mad scientist that, that's coercing someone into behaving a certain way. So that's interesting because the person isn't acting on their own, but that's not really about their free will. That's a story about something somebody with free will, the mad scientist is mm-hmm. doing, and then other people with free will have to stop them, right? Zombie stories are examples of, of creatures that don't have free will. But they're not philosophically all that interesting. Um, you know, the famous philosophy of Mayan philosophical zombies aside, and, and they're humans that just don't have consciousness. Um, but what makes that interesting is how the people with free will <laughs> deal with zombies, right? When, it, when it's done right. The Walking Dead, the first couple seasons, not so much um, sense. So, um, you know, Minority Report um, is kind of trading on that. It's more of a fatalist type thing. Um, but again, you know, it's, it's people with free will fighting against something that has this kind of foreknowledge of what they're doing, right? A, a system that's, that's a, it's assuming a kind of determinism, um, but it turns out to be false. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's, the one of the less sort of philosophically interesting um, 
bits of pop culture. Well, that's a weird way of wording it. Um, it doesn't lend itself to great um, philosophy and pop culture, except for in those instances where people um, have it and some people don't or some beings don't like the zombies. The one exception to this, and this isn't quite hitting on this issue, in my opinion, um, are movies with prophecies. And there's just so many great ones. Um, there, you know, the, the writers have sort of constrained themselves. They, they put this prophecy out there. Something's going to happen. It's going to happen to the, the, you know, the hero or one of the heroes. They're going to have to do something. Um, and it's not just a matter of fulfilling it. It's usually something you don't want to happen, right? And if the prophecy doesn't happen, if they just weasel their way out of it, um, it makes for a bad show. People won't do that, right? So I think that happens all the time in pop culture where there's a prophecy and they weasel their way out of it. Yeah, but then it sucks, right? So, uh, so the, the, the better instances, um, yeah, again, think of like um, you know, season five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, right? Where it's prophecy that she's going to die at the end. And, um, you know, and they don't weasel out of that. They have to, they have to work with it. Um, and, it, you know, and it, actually, I guess that happens in season one too, right? So a couple of times... Mm -hmm. And then you're wondering what clever way they're going to use to get out of it. Probably worth making note here of the distinction between determinism and fatalism, um, where determinism is this view that there's a causal, like that the world operates according to cause and effect, that every event has a cause. Yeah. Uh, and so if you say you're determined, uh, let's say you're determined to make that sandwich or whatever you were mm -hmm. going to do in eight minutes, but mm. hey, it's eight minutes now. I know I didn't do it. Um, then that means that there's, there's a specific line of cause and effect that's going to, there's no, it's, it's not branching. It's not, you know, there's yeah. one path and it's going, it's leading directly to sandwich. Whereas fatalism is the view that there's this thing that's going to happen and it's going to happen no matter what. So I, I think it's in Van Inwagen's book on free will. The description is like, okay, you go to a, a fortune teller and the fortune teller tells you you're going to be shot by black. Mm -hmm. um, and so you escape to India to make sure that that doesn't happen. And then sure enough, you, the plane lands, there's black, there's he black. shoots you. Yeah. And, and the idea is sort of left there that no matter where you went, right. he would have been there because you were fated. Right. This is the thing black. they tell soldiers, right? If there's mm -hmm. a bullet with your name on it, it's, it's going to find you. you. So you go in the door first, and, yeah. you know? Right. Um, right. So, yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I wanted to say about prophecies is, you know, this is, Buffy was fated to die, but it's not written into that season that she doesn't have free will all throughout. It's just, yeah. you know, every path is going to lead to that mm -hmm. regardless of which one she chooses. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I guess I'm thinking this just supports my free wills, the stodgy old, you know, gentleman's club <laughs> Philosophical I, views. It's it, you, know, you go to one of those places, and by gentlemen's club, I don't mean what it now has come to mean. Um, <laughs> but you know, you go in there, and it's like, boy, this is really nice aged wood, and you sit in chairs of the finest Corinthian leather. I mean, it's, it's great. You know, this, the scotch is never better. But um, you know, you're you're missing out. You're um, you're you know, right down the road. Um, you know, the the um, pixies are playing live, and kids are jumping up and down, and. <laughs> You know, when there's sandwiches. I don't know. I, I, I think, uh, maybe I think it's more interesting than you do. Or maybe you're just jaded from 
since you've taught this class. Yeah, I, it's, <laughs> I, it's just, you know, it's everything I'm comparing it to. I mean, I'm, I'm, so I just, here, I'll offer an alternative picture of free will and pop culture. So let's, let's just stipulate for a second that all stories that you're telling about human beings are stories about creatures that don't have free will. Then just look at all the variety of messed up circumstances people can find themselves in that right this person was causally determined to do this oh but this person was causally determined to do that like and 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 so the 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 stranger the story is the more interesting the set of deterministic circumstances in which this person just happened to land yeah yeah i mean i guess i want to maybe backtrack on what i'm saying a little bit we've been watching um miracle workers right and uh-huh. there's some nice treatment of um free will there but in Miracle Workers, it, it's not the, um, you know, science fiction-y, there's no free will. What are the implications of it, right? Rather, God gives everybody free will, and then um, that just turns out to be a disaster, right? It's interesting because, you know, in philosophical discussions, like, so uh, in response to the problem of evil, um, this idea that if there's, uh, if there's an all-good, all-knowing, all-powerful God, why is there uh, suffering in the world? Uh, people will frequently offer the free will theodicy. Well, God in his infinite wisdom just thought uh, the best possible world he could create is one with free will in it because of how good free will is. And so, but the in Miracle Workers, it's like God is portrayed as an idiot, yeah. a buffoon. <laughs> and so like, it's, it's kind of the opposite that he puts free will in the world because he's a moron. <laughs> yeah, and, and it doesn't create the best possible world. Yeah, right. It's the world that we're currently living in. And, you know, um, pre-pandemic, but... Right. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe plays this character that helps uh, answer prayers. And so there's these miracles in these very minor ways. Um, but he, he, you know, if you make the miracle too significant, it's going to have all these implications that you may not have imagined. So, so he tries to refrain from doing that. And so he'll do things like help people find their keys or help people find their gloves. You know, help, say someone drops their keys in the snow... And he melts one snowflake at a time <laughs> until the person can, oh, they found their keys, like, by looking for them um, when they would have been covered in snow otherwise. But one noteworthy example that has to do with this with, with the free will issue is um, someone drops a glove uh, into, a, like, a pile of leaves, I think. Mm-hmm. So he has one leaf at a time, blow away. So this person can, of their own accord, find their glove. And then they find their glove. And then he, he put it on. And now he's ready to rob the bank. Uh-huh. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and a little side bit about that. Um, he's come by way of little cards that he looks at and he processes. Mm-hmm. And anything more difficult than that, he stamps impossible. Yeah. <laughs> There's one kind of discussion of free will that I do think is super interesting. But it's not the free will... Or the, it's not the challenge to free will that's posed by determinism, or at least not this kind of scientific cause and effect determinism, uh, where it's physical stuff is subject to causal laws, but rather like uh, the, the idea of, of social determinism and the fact that your social circumstances and the environment in which you grew up can, ha- can, can basically in many ways dictate who you are. And I think those are those are not just interesting philosophical conversations. They're critical philosophical conversations. They're they're conversations that like should govern our moral lives. And I mean, so I've 
I thought this so often going in and um, working with the students in the prison mm -hmm. that I found myself in very different social circumstances from the ones in which many of those people found themselves in. Right, and right. so for me to act like, you know, for anyone who's not incarcerated to act like they're somehow just superior beings in, in light of the fact that they never found themselves incarcerated, I just fails to take into account the diversity of experiences and that some people start out. And I'm not saying that everybody who goes to prison or something is, is just a victim of their circumstances, although that may be true if determinism is true. Right, right. Some, some of these things are very hard to overcome. Like it's an unreasonable expectation for us to, to think that you can start out essentially anywhere mm -hmm. and everyone has a path forward that involves not making significant mistakes. Yeah, it's the, right. the American dream, my, my uncle always used to say to me, it's not, he's very anti-egalitarianism, it's not equal outcome, it's equal opportunity. Oh, yeah. And I would Probably. say, do you think everyone has the same opportunity? Right. Absolutely like, not. Sure. I pulled myself up from my upper middle class background well, to be even more upper middle exactly. class. Exactly. I mean, I think that there's so many people who think that where you are is purely a result of choice, which mm -hmm. strikes me as laughably false, right? <laughs> I mean, just, I mean, not, it may be too sad to be laughably false, but that, yeah, yeah. that I mean, the things that even suggest themselves to you as options are dependent on your social circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I really appreciate films that make that very clear. So there are all sorts of films about the criminal justice system and the death penalty and things like that, that explore those, those um, issues. Mm -hmm. Okay, Rates, what are we liking this week? Well, we're loving Lovecraft Country, although off and on, and I'll explain why. But um, uh, so I think Jordan, both Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams have something to do with mm -hmm. this, I think, whether they're producers or I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but it's, it's a treatment of, it's a sci-fi, H.P. Lovecraft-inspired show that said, I want to say in the 1960s? 50s, maybe. 50s? Okay. Um, but it's also a treatment of racism. Um, and so maybe that shines some light on why I'm loving it only some of the time. Um, I'm loving the show is good throughout, but sometimes there are moments where with everything that's going on in the country right now, like we, we watched partially partway into, I think episode three and we're like, Ooh, got to take a break. Yeah, <laughs> got to yeah. take a little breather because, uh, too depressing with current events, but the show is fantastic. Yeah. Very good. Um, also loving the vow. Um, so what are we, four episodes into that? Um, I'm a sucker for a good story about cults. Yeah, it's a cult show. It's kind of disturbing. It's a documentary, though. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're sort of interested in, in that kind of thing, um, it has some people that were in it that um, had the good fortune of documenting a lot of it while they were in it because they mm -hmm. were filmmakers making a film about it and yeah and so when they you, still thought it was legit yeah and so you you get a really nice up close it's not just some sort of after the fact testimonial mm -hmm. um of, of all the main players uh we we talked about miracle workers um a little bit so we watched um the first season of that just this last week binge watched it um and that, that was great lots of fun um i Somehow thought it was maybe going to be better, uh, but I think only because of the similarities, I was thinking, oh boy, we'll, we'll get another Good Omens or something, and 
Um, you know, things don't have to be Neil Gaiman great mm-hmm. to be good. Right? Yeah. I, I maybe built it up in my mind a little bit, um, especially with the cast. Um, that said, it was it was fun throughout, and some of it was was sort of intellectually interesting and philosophically interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly, it's just kind of a humorous take. Yeah, very light. It, it's a it's a good thing to watch right now if you're looking for something to pick up. We watched it on HBO Max, but I think it's originally on a different. Yeah, other... like TNT or something, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so we can't get season two just yet. Um, Room 104 continues to be good. So the thing that's back that, that I want to talk about for a second um, that I'm liking and that everybody doesn't give a care about, um, <laughs> but sports. Um, it's so interesting. I actually want to do an episode. Um, maybe we can get a panel together in, yeah. in the coming weeks. Um, you, to, I needn't be on that panel. Yeah. <laughs> um, you always have stuff to say, um, philosophical oh, stuff. I never shut like up. That. Um, yeah, and so it's it's weird to watch these um, games in arenas, right? Football's back, basketball's been back for a little bit, um, where they have cardboard cutouts of people. <laughs> okay, piped, it, yeah. Piped in. Yeah. Sports is way more interesting when it's this surreal. And and just knowing that um, yeah they're they're testing all the players before games but the tests aren't 100 percent reliable so you're thinking some of these people could be killing some of those others and none of them know it but they might in a week or two right I mean, <laughs> yeah wow it has this sort of gladiator esque um, um, element to it so um, yeah I, I gotta say I've, I've been enjoying baseball basketball hockey and football and and after not having any sports for a long time it feels really good but it, it's just the strangest thing and then football apparently next week they're gonna you know have people in some of the stadiums which i think is nuts um under the circumstances somebody posted a photo i think it was a meme but it it was a legit photo of a baseball game with cardboard people in the stands and that completely orange sky due to the fires yeah, uh, yeah. And it's like, what's more 2020 than this? <laughs> this <Yeah>. photo. <laughs> Maybe that photo with the senior uh, living center um, saying, like, availability that's, like, burnt to the ground. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah but. 2020. <laughs> God love you. Okay, Rach, that's a wrap. Another episode is in the can, and once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Please visit our webpage, that's I think ifan.com, all one word, to find out about upcoming episodes. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, please go to the webpage, click on the link at the top of the page that says Donate, and follow the instructions. As always, your support is greatly appreciated. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. It helps. See you next time.